Welcome to the G3 Podcast, a weekly podcast focused on the Christian life where we examine doctrinal and cultural issues that impact God's church. My name is Josh Bice, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jeremy Voilo. Well, I'm very excited to have uh, our brother in Christ, Costi Hen, with us today as we talk about his new book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. So welcome to the show, Costi. Thanks for having me on, guys. Good to be here. Absolutely. As you as you uh, know, G3 is coming up. We're going to be looking forward to hearing from you. Preach the Word and the conference in January. But as we get rolling, just for the sake of those who might not know your background and who you are, give us a bit of an introduction as to who Costi Hen is and uh, just uh, the, the association that you have with Benny Hen, and then, of course, how you came to faith in Christ. Just a brief summary. Yeah, I am a, a pastor here in Gilbert, Arizona. I just accepted a pastorate out here. I was in Southern California in Orange County at Mission Bible Church, pastoring there uh, for seven years nearly. And uh, so I'm a Bible church pastor. And uh, at my church, we don't do healing services. We don't preach the prosperity gospel. I don't drive a Maserati or an Aston Martin. So um, I, we are a little different. My last name's Hinn. Uh, Uncle Benny is the way I've grown up knowing him. He's Benny Hinn, um, the guy in the white suit to most people. And my dad is his brother. My dad was a pastor in Canada for all of my life. So I'm a, I'm a prosperity gospel and a charismatic extremism PK. And grew up in all of that. And then uh, the Lord saved me uh, near seven years ago as well, right around the time that I jumped on board with a church plant. There's plenty of other details in there, but I'll keep it short. And it was in Southern California. Mission Bible Church, where I was pastoring, used to be called Moment Church. And we were one of those uh, hipster, trendy church plants that just did whatever to get people in the door. And then one day, uh, Tony, our teaching pastor, got really sick and tired of, uh, you know, constantly trying to figure out a way to do the next thing to get people coming back. And so he was over it. He decides we're going to go through a book of the Bible. We were still pretty off the reservation. I mean, we had a woman pastor on the staff and we were, you know, singing Bethel and doing weird stuff. I mean, it was just kind of a hodgepodge of attractional church method. And then the book of John essentially flattened our church. and. I was up one week, John 5, 1 through 17, healing at the pool of Bethesda. And I figured I had it nailed because I'm a hen. I'm going to preach on healing. And uh, that study opened my eyes to the true gospel, the sovereignty of God and Christ and healing, uh, God's absolute power and control over all things, orchestrating all things, even the, in the midst of um, my decisions and my sin, God was providentially ordering my steps and had called me. And so I repented of my sin and study. I wept bitterly over it. I devoted myself to study and then um, got into seminary, Got lost my title as a pastor. I became PIT, pastor in training. And so spent the better half of, of the remaining years um, being discipled and walking that road. And then just a couple years ago, started preaching on the topic and dealing with it more publicly. But overall, I'm just a local church guy. I bleed local church. I love what the Lord um, has died for and what he promised to build. And that's where I'm at now. Costi, I know you and I have, have talked about your story um, in person, and I've, I've counted it an honor to get to know you 
over the last year or so. Um, but when I picked up God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, How Truth Overwhelms a Life Built on Lies, you really go in-depth into that story um, to the point where I, I remember texting you halfway through that I think I was I was on the verge of tears just seeing what God has done in your life to to kind of transition you out of uh, th- that theology and that um, yeah just that practice. Um, what what really brought you uh, over the line to not only leave prosperity theology but then to embrace the world of reform theology? It started with the understanding of the sovereignty of God. In the prosperity gospel, I was sovereign and uh, my faith was a force I could use to control God and make him do what I want. So I could confess house, Bentley, cars, whatever, wealth, health, all of that. And um, God was the magic genie. I rub him right. I do the right things and he gives me my wishes or he's like the cosmic banker um, and my faith is sort of the ATM card. All the different analogies fit here. That's the way I viewed God. And everything got flipped upside down and it suddenly became very clear to me that I am low. I'm depraved. I'm a sinner. God is high. He is holy. Uh, He is righteous and perfect. I'm not. He's in control. I'm not. He's sovereign. I'm not. And so that realization, when that turned upside down, it was, I would call it dominoes. It was the beginning of the rest of knowing who God is. And of course, God is infinite. There's no way to fully know him, but what he's revealed to, to us and to me, certainly in the word of God, the Bible, um, began to suddenly make sense. And so I studied the attributes of God. Um, I remember one of the the audio teachings. I found all these guys, like obviously MacArthur had written this commentary that was helpful. And I was thinking, man, this guy, it, it's like just Bible fest. Everything has a parenthesis with Bible verses. I'm going, I, I want to read more from him. And obviously Sproul and and many others. And so as I started to listen to their teaching, it was just pure unadulterated Bible teaching about God. So the more I understood who God was, um, I, I could never go back. It was true conversion. I repented of everything. I wanted every stone in my life kicked over and it became, uh, I, I had a high view of God suddenly. And I realized how low my view was of God when I was in the prosperity gospel. That's very good, Costia. Um, you know, as we think about Benny Hinn, as we hear that name, and uh, we oftentimes in more conservative evangelical circles, we will hear that name spoken ill of. We'll, we'll hear uh, lots of critique uh, about Benny Hinn. And of course, doctrinally so, that is a necessity. But as we think about, uh, again, in your book, you talk about how you grew up in, in your family and, and the relationship that you had with your family, both your father and, of course, uh, extended family members. Talk to us about how they loved you, how they cared for you, and the relationship that you still have today, although you have a, a different position theologically. Well, Uncle Benny was always very generous and very gracious to me. Uh, he never harmed me or did me wrong. He was, he never had ill will towards me or anything like that. So again, speaking not theologically, someone might say, well, what do you mean? He did you a lot of wrong. Look at the theology that he propagated. I understand that. But aside on a personal relational level, um, he favored me. He was always so kind to me. And so that was something that was, um, 
that is separate. That's in its own compartment, if you will, from the theology. I can compartmentalize as a family member and say, yeah, I love my uncle as a family member, and I love him uh, enough to tell him the truth, and I want to pray for his soul, and I, I want him saved. But at the same time, that doesn't change the fact that he is a heretic and has preached heresy mm -hmm. for decades and has been used literally by Satan himself to lead people into damnation. So I want him to repent, and yet I'm acutely mm -hmm. aware of all of that. So I can, I can compartmentalize those of the family members. So your question was, how do they treat me? Loving and kind and gracious. My father, uh, literally to this day, I just talked to him the other day. He's telling me, I'm so proud of you. Somebody sent me a message, and they heard you on the radio. And I, you know, he's cheering me on. And I, I sometimes look at him, and I'm like, you know, I'm talking about like us, like you and what we used to do. And he's like, absolutely. You know, I'm right. proud of you. I think God is using you. And so my parents and I, that relationship has, has come a little bit more over to a healthy place where we can dialogue. And, um, but they've always told me they're proud of me. They've always said they loved me. I don't, you know, have a, a father wound and, and daddy issues. Like my dad didn't love me. And so I ran to the, into the arms of John MacArthur and, you know, TMS and Grace Church took me in and now they use me as a weapon, you know, to attack my, it, none of that is accurate. I've had people really funny. They'll send messages in and say, you know, how much are they paying you to go against your family? And I'm laughing, um, you know, and just yesterday, my, again, when I saw my parents, my mom brought me a commentary from their house. She's been reading and she said, Hey, um, here's this. I've been reading this. I've gone through it pretty good. You may want it now. I know you love books. And she gives me exposition of the gospel of John by Arthur, by A.W. Pink. And I'm like, good stuff, mom. What else are you reading? She says, oh, I'm reading the book oh. on sovereignty by Pink now. It's really been helpful for me. So the, the gospel and the word of God makes people think. It convicts and challenges. And for others, like my uncle, um, him and I, it's, it's a very fractured relationship. And so that's a picture that provides a use. You, you can see the tension that comes. And we just have to navigate that and stick to the word of God. So, so clearly this is theologically driven. This isn't like you have a, a personal agenda here. And as you know, Josh and I have gotten to know you, um, and warm hearted, loving, kind, and, and there's no sense in which you have any ill will towards your family. This is theologically driven and that's what we're hearing. Absolutely. So what is then the theological teaching of the prosperity gospel and why is it dangerous? Why even make such a big issue of this at all? It's a great question. The prosperity gospel is a false good news. It's a false gospel. It's the good news that Jesus died for your sin. Oh, sure. But what you really get when you follow Jesus are all those wonderful things that he died for. They're all wrapped up in the atonement. The prosperity gospel preacher will tell you, you know, you're guaranteed healing. You just got to receive it by faith. Oh, you're guaranteed eternal life and security and salvation. You just got to confess it and repent and follow him in faith. So the same way, you need to repent of negative thoughts and turn to the positive outlook on life that God has for you. And guess what's going to happen when you do that? Oh, you're going to get healing because healing's in the atonement too. And, and you're going to have a pain-free life full of great relationships because guess what? There's no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow in heaven. But like Kenneth Copeland will tell people, uh, there's nowhere in the Bible that says 
you got to wait till heaven to get it all. You can have it now. And that sounds just like Lucifer in the garden, you know, paraphrasing, if you will, as he approaches Eve slithering in and says, you know, basically, did God really say? He begins to undermine what God had decreed and what God had already laid out and made clear. And that is what Satan does through the prosperity gospel. He slithers in, if you will, through these false teachers, and they are exploiting and deceiving people by undermining what God has said. The gospel is not about stuff. It's about getting saved. The gospel and even faith is not about having a a special force that can unlock stuff for you. It's about faith in Christ. It's you are justified. You're made righteous because you have faith in God. The prosperity gospel is also a very works-driven system. You have to give to earn God's favor and his blessing on your life. You have to speak things out and confess things by faith. You have to say certain things. In Jesus' name is almost like abracadabra. You just say it, and it's the magic phrase that gives you all that you want. And then lastly, confession is really not about sin. Like 1 John 1, 9 would tell us that we're to confess our sin and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confession in the prosperity gospel is about confessing things that I want. So people are confessing like, uh, you know, Phineas Quinby way back in, in the New Thought Genesis, if you will, the era where a lot of the prosperity gospel ideologies begin to birth. He used to say, you know, what I confess, I can possess. Right. That's where all this comes from. So reaching back, I'm trying to give you a broad picture here. Um, That is what's so damning. It demeans Christ, lowers him to a small puny God, lowercase g, and man is suddenly deified and in control. Wow. Yeah, the the demeaning of Jesus Christ, that's that's the heart of it, isn't it? He's he's whittled Mm -hmm. down to a a genie in a bottle, uh, really there for our own pleasure, would you say? Absolutely. He is a small little God, and he's just crossing his fingers after he died, and he set aside all this stuff for you, and he's just hoping and waiting for you to take hold of it by faith because he really wants to give it all to you. So if you're sick, you know, what's your problem? He already died for that. Just claim it by faith. If you're poor, or you're living in the gutter, or you haven't been promoted yet at your job, or you don't have a perfect marriage. Why are you wallowing in such sin and and such negativity and such brokenness when your master and Lord has already given you all that you need? You know, that's very Osteen-esque. That's what we hear today. Just take it by faith. It's already there. And none of that is accurate to the New Testament and what it teaches. Yeah, on that point, Costi, I would simply say, I think that it's extremely important as we think about theology and as we think about health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, and as we think about just uh, as a broad subject, the charismatic movement, there are various different branches, you might say, of the charismatic movement. But I know that you have a firm commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture. And as we think about uh, when we demean the, the sufficiency of God's word, it can lead us into error in various different ways. But what I wanted to ask is, as we think about the popular sort of uh, fads that we hear and that we see in evangelicalism today, a lot of the popular teachers, whether it be men or women, are oftentimes using the language of God spoke to me or that God said 
this mm-hmm. to me or that God told me. And they often act as if God gave them a specific you know, instruction, how to serve someone or how to make a specific decision as far as life or marriage or whatever it might be. So what would you say uh, about that sort of language? Is, is that very dangerous? Is it harmful? Is it, is it not so dangerous? Or what would you say to that? I would say to the language of God told me or God spoke to me is incredibly dangerous. And I say that with respect to people who may say things like, you know, I sense that the Holy Spirit is leading us this direction, or I have a conviction that this is what God would have us do. There, I think there's some nuances there where you know, a pastor, even in reform circles, may get up and say, look, I've been praying through this, and I, I really just get the sense here that it's time as a church that we start supporting a missionary. I feel like that's what God would have us do, and, and the church isn't supporting any missionaries. That's pretty low-hanging fruit, right? Clearly, God has already said in his word uh, that we are to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So let's help those that are—there's that. So let's keep that off to the side, and let's just look at this objectively. The— action or the the notion that God is telling me something immediately puts me in the holy man myth spot. And we used to do this. We would say, God told me, God spoke to me, thus saith the Lord. And it would separate us as being somebody who had an inside track with God that people didn't have. And God has given us all we need in his word. And we are Here's the beautiful thing, just like my uncle or we used to kind of say, there's the anointing and we would create this aura and magical uh, category where there was the anointing and we had it. And if you wanted it, you needed to give. We are all anointed, right? John is really clear about that in his later letters in the New Testament. Well, another thing is 1 Corinthians 2 talks about us having the mind of Christ. And we're filled with the Spirit. And Romans talks about they that are led by the Spirit. They are the sons of God. I'm literally filled with God himself. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. So I don't need to say God told me and God spoke to me and all this stuff. I just need to look at his word and then I need to be in prayer and saying, God, align my will with yours and let each decision and each action and each command I go to live out simply be the providential outworking of all that you've told me to do. And I'm living and walking in the spirit. That is what we need to do. That other stuff is smoke and mirrors and maybe at best, Josh, it is um, people trying, they're, they're expressing a feeling or a thought they had, and they're saying, you know, I feel like God told me. Well, you feel with your emotions, you hear with your ears. Which was it? Yeah, right, right. No, that's a good point. I, you know, it, w- within the Reformed community, we, we're often criticized that we're not uh, being led by the Spirit or that, you know, that we're sort of stiff and, and that sort of thing. So I just want to ask a pointed question as it relates to this matter. Do you believe in miracles today? Do you believe that God still performs miracles? Can he still heal someone physically? Absolutely. God can. You said, can God? Of course God can. God can do whatever he wants. Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. We serve a supernatural, mighty God who can and does work the miraculous and the supernatural today. I'll I'll give you one that's really obvious. The conversion of a soul is a miracle. God is working miracles all the time. So let's start just salvifically. The fact that dead people in their hearts 
where Romans 3 tells us there's none righteous, not one. Nobody even seeks good and tries to do good. Like I was, I was just lost in my office. I'm going to preach on healing, go through the motions. And then God just bursts in. That is miraculous. It's out of the norm. And I do think that you have moments in which God graciously heals saints and he responds to their prayers. And we pray, oh, Lord, would you please uh, heal my son or would you heal my aunt or uh, this wonderful sister or brother in our church? And have we seen God work in incredible ways? Of course. But is anyone going around wielding the gift of healing like the apostles? Are they walking through the street saying, silver and gold have I none, that which I have give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ, snap the fingers, rise and walk? Are they clearing out hospitals? No, that's not happening. And so I think it's really important for us to uh, categorize what is normative and what is non-normative. What are gifts that every church has? Like right now, if, if, they, if somebody wakes you up tomorrow, Josh, and you're getting out of bed in your PJs and you haven't even brushed your teeth or had coffee, I bet you could teach the word because you probably are gifted in teaching. You don't need to have some, you, you have that gift all the time. Well, if someone has the gift of miracles or healing, why do they need a stadium? Why do they need music? Why do they need healing lines? Why do they need catchers? Why do they need anything? Just go heal, go do miracles. If you have the gift, go and use it. So I think it's important that we categorize things and really rest in the fact that God can do anything. But there are normative patterns that are clearly seen in scripture and today. And there are non-normative patterns, which would be what the apostles experienced as they laid the Ephesians 2.20 foundation of the church. And now we come after, and you know, you and I are not Paul and Peter 2.0. Mm, yeah, that's a really good point. Well, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with our friend Kostihan. So we worship the God who is holy. We worship the God who is righteous. We worship the God who pours out his wrath. And at the same time, we bow ourselves in humble adoration because we deserve that wrath too. But he saves us in spite of that. The Church of Jesus is redeemed and called to worship God. Therefore, worship matters. This January, we will gather for a very important conference on worship in which we will address important questions like, is God concerned with how we worship Him? As we consider the different ways in which we worship God, from the public reading of Scripture, prayer, the preaching of God's Word, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Is anything optional? Are we free to rearrange, reinvent, or repackage worship to accommodate cultural trends or the preferences of people? We must not overlook the privilege of worship. Not only does God receive our worship, but as a result, we are changed and transformed as we engage in the worship of our triune God. Look at this. You will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Do you see this? Well, I don't want any of that doctrine stuff. Well, then you, you have to go to hell. What we believe will determine our eternal destiny, the doctrine, the teaching that we hold to. Why do we study doctrine? Our life depends upon it. 
Join us this January as we will enjoy fellowship, spiritual growth, and the worship of God at the 2020 G3 Conference. For information and reservations, visit g3conference.com. Costi, I know that Josh and I are very excited to have you joining us this January, uh, the 16th through the 18th for the G3 conference. I think, is that your first conference you'll be attending, Costi? It will be my first one, and I'm I'm really thrilled. Yeah, yeah. buckle up for that. The, the conference, man, once that thing kicks off, it doesn't stop or slow down. You will love it. You will love it. That's what I was told. <laughs> the 2020 conference is on the subject of worship. And so in relation to the subject of health, wealth, and prosperity, and then as you've embraced uh, a biblical doctrine of salvation, soteriology, a biblical understanding of sovereignty, how has that changed your understanding of worship, um, specifically the corporate gathering of the church? Man, that is a loaded question. I, I could go over to... We could talk ecclesiology or other, but I'll, I'll say this: um, in in regards to worship, not even how it plays itself out in the local assembly, but in regards to the view of worship, my entire view changed with regard to the glory of God. Everything in the prosperity gospel is about me, and it's man centered. Right. And I suddenly began to realize, you know, like Isaiah. 42, um, eight, you know, God's not going to share his glory and the prosperity gospel is filled with glory hogs that everybody is a glory ball hog. I want it for me. What's in it for me. What can God do for me? I'm all about me. And true biblical worship again, flips that paradigm. Worship is vertical. It is all about God and his glory and who he is. And we suddenly like Isaiah six, if we get that idea in our minds of who God is and we really understand his holiness, if he is in our minds holy, then we suddenly have a true realization of who we are and what we are. And then we echo Isaiah's words and we say, whoa, we are people of unclean lips. And that's the reality that came to bear upon my soul and my mind, the holiness of God, the great glory of God. And um, I had to let go of of all that I used to think about God. So the topic of worship became near and dear to my heart because, um, as well, both of my sisters are uh, worship leaders. One of them cut an album uh, with the the team and producers from Jesus Culture. The other graduated from Bethel Supernatural School of Ministry and was trained in, as a prophetess. So I grew up in a family full of singers. Both my sisters play the lights out on the piano. They can play by ear. They can play Royal Conservatory. Gifted and talented, beautiful women who are being used in circles that are leading people away from Christ and away from true worship. So, um, yeah, this is a big deal, a huge deal in our local churches. Very good. Well, um, as we think about the subject of uh, just family relationships and friends and, and things of that nature. Costi, you know, what would be your advice as far as how to reach someone? If we have a close family member or close friend who has been deceived by the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, what would be your advice as to how 
best to reach those individuals. Obviously, we need to pray for them. Obviously, we need to actually tell them the truth and share the gospel with them. But what would be your advice as far as just relationally how to deal with those individuals to bring them to Great the knowledge question. of the truth? We're assuming we're going to give the gospel and give the truth. So let's let's go down your path. I like that. Relationally, go to Jude and go to the end where he categorizes, gives us three really helpful categories of, of people. Um, he says to have mercy on those who are doubting. <clears throat> Category one, you've got people that are doubters, and you've got to be really merciful and patient with them. They're always wavering back and forth. They're, they're almost a little bit annoying because they just don't really ever get it. And just when you think you got an in with them, they, they you know, get sucked into something and, and you you know, you get a text message with a verdict sermon and they're like, man, you got to watch this. I'm like, all right, they still don't get it. That's category one, you know, the, the doubters. And then um, there's others who are deceived. And those are people that you need to go in and try to snatch out of the fire. They're the people that are caught up and you're going in like the Coast Guard, dropping the rope relationally and saying, I'm, I'm telling you, you're in error. You're in heresy. You're going away from God. I want to pull you back towards him. I'm praying that he's going to do some work in your heart. You need to hear what I'm saying. So that's more rescue operation and you're all in. And then there's a third category and he says, have mercy on others with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. I would call them the dangerous that is like my uncle and others who we want to keep a healthy distance from. These are dangerous individuals. They are smooth talkers. They are the one that fit the rest of the letter of Jude, Second Peter 2, that entire chapter. These are smooth operators who know how to secretly introduce destructive heresies. And if you're not careful, you can quickly be sucked into their games and their deception. And so categorize your relationships, know the kind of person you're dealing with, and whether you need to rebuke sharply a false teacher or whether you're correcting an opponent with gentleness and patience and having mercy on them in a way that actually allows you maybe to get coffee or grab a lunch and really help them and try to rescue them. Mm. Yeah, very good word. As we wrap up today, Costi, if suppose someone's listening to the podcast today who does not know Christ, what would be your word to them? That right now, as it stands, your short snippet on earth will end and you will head off into an infinite eternity in judgment and in hell and in fire. And what American churches tell you is that that is unloving and that is fire and brimstone and that is the old angry Baptist fundamental pastor and that you don't need to worry about that. And I'm telling you right now in 2019, that is not the old fundamentalist fire and brimstone Baptist pastor. That is the Bible and it's Christ himself. There is an eternal judgment coming. Please, please, please turn to Christ. He is love. He is justice. He is truth. He is grace. And if you turn and repent of your sin and you confess out loud to him, my way is terrible. It doesn't work. I am a sinner. I'm unrighteous. Your way is best. I want to follow and obey. If he's truly done a work in your heart, that confession will be evidenced by the way you go on and live your life. But it starts with repenting today and turning to him. Go all in on Jesus. Thank you so much, Costi, for joining us today for the G3 podcast. We look forward to seeing you in person in January at the G3. And if you're interested in joining us for the conference, you can find out more information at g3conference.com.